0: This is what I'm thinking. You're looking at the Netflix homepage. What the hell is this? It's about five years from now, give or take. When you scroll down, it doesn't look like it does today. Today, when you scroll down on that Netflix screen, you see it's divided into sections. There's TV shows and movies, right? Under movies, there's drama, comedy, action, horror, international, there's a children-oriented programming, documentary, and a bunch of others. All right, so... Five years from now, it could look like this. Under movies, there's three options. Fictional movies, documentaries, and hybrids. Movies that are not and do not attempt to present themselves as full documentary work or fictional work. Regardless, these days, maybe there's some different genres of documentaries that are common, as in biography documentaries or crime documentaries or history documentaries. But five years from now, when you click documentary the screen won't just be a bunch of documentaries and their movie posters, but instead, another page of options. You'll scroll down under documentaries and see something really cool. Comedy documentaries. Horror documentaries. Crime documentaries. Interactive documentaries. You think Animal House or old school or funny movies? Wait until you see the documentary version of those. You think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a horror film? Wait until you see the documentary version. And there'll be endless versions of these, all documentary. There are examples of these types of documentaries, Rats, for instance, or Meet the Patels, but relatively speaking, not many. Documentary filmmakers have existed since cameras were being built, but to make a documentary, to make real life entertaining, that took a long time for networks to wrap their heads around. And when it did on the TV side, it was usually fairly simple concepts. An American Family in 1973, American Masters in 1986, anything Sheila Nevins did at HBO, and it took giant steps forward in terms of popularity with the real world in 1992. Moving down the line, seeing as documentaries are meant to showcase reality, what's really going on in the world, we're going to start to see interactive documentaries. Because, right now, documentaries are still fairly limited. The filmmaker is telling you their version of what happened. They can't do much more than that. But you, the audience member, will have the potential to change that, I think. You can be that person that has a piece of information that nobody knows, or they didn't know up until now. Today, documentaries, by and large, I think just remain incredibly narrow. As fast as we think technology is changing, it's always tough for big institutions to keep up with the artists. That's where we get to today's episode, our reaction episode, where the narrative I told is changed by you and what you say. I got the following message the other day.
1: Well, Mr. Jenks, you will be surprised at who is calling you. I woke up and turned over and I saw this podcast pop on my phone before I got up and I'm like, hmm, a podcast about my dad. Let me see what this is about. Let me see who's claiming they know what really happened. My name is Mariam Ali. I'm the oldest daughter of Muhammad Ali. Um, I, I, I was cringing a little bit when I, when I listened to the podcast because I've heard so many people think they know what my dad is made of and who he is. But, you know, you seem to try to do reporting and come up with a theory about that. Um, that uh, attempted suicide by the man man named Joseph. I've referenced that story sometimes in speeches. But anywho, um, I wanna give you a call because I do know what really happened.
0: So that was one of Muhammad Ali's daughters who listened to our first episode of this series, The Talk. I'll be speaking with her in an upcoming episode. For now, as I wrap my head around the potential of these interactive episodes, I wanna start with feedback. I got the following message from Alexander and I love this message because he wasn't shy about what he thought.
2: Hey, Jenks. My name is Alexander. Um, I'm a filmmaker also in Los Angeles. I uh, just finished listening to your podcast about Andrew Stanton and what happened in movie. And I think you kind of danced around it a little bit, but I feel like you missed basically the entire
0: picture. I loved how candid he was. He also, in the message, goes on to make a good point, which we'll get to in a second. And I do think he knows what he's talking about. He's in the entertainment business, although there's a lot of people that BS in the entertainment business, but he doesn't seem like one of them. Uh, Definitely listen to that episode. It's one of our more popular Anatomy of a Box Office Flop. It's about the movie John Carter to get the full context. What we did in the episode, I, I tried to really break down why the movie financially failed. And Alexander brings up that the director of the movie, Andrew Stanton, who had won two Academy Awards, was making films when he won those awards at a specific studio, which was Pixar. And then this film, John Carter, was made at Disney. So I gave Alexander a call, and he said the following. I loved your message. Uh, I, I mean, I loved it in that it was uh, straightforward and, and clear, and I think also uh, gave a good point of view that I definitely didn't touch on. Uh, would you mind walking through a little bit uh, what your point of view was in that, that kind of one critical element that you think um, I overlooked?
2: Yeah. So, um, I, first of all, you know, I, I really love the episode. Um, I. I didn't really listen to, it, listen to it because of the John Carter story.
0: Mm. I was
2: more interested in hearing about um, what, what really actually did happen. Why, how did this big, big movie flop? Mm. Um, and, then, and then I was like, it kind of just hit me towards the end of the podcast where I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, Pixar is basically an incubated type of creative space. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a creative campus in Emeryville, an animation studio based in Emeryville, which is in Oakland in the East Bay and everyone collaborates together. You know, it's, it's like kind of one big family. And if we're talking about all of the Pixar films that started like, like the early Pixar films, you know, like, I, I don't like, we're in like Pixar 2.0, but like Pixar 1.0, which would be like Finding Nemo, Toy Story, um, Monsters Inc, all this stuff, which, Andrew Stanton wrote, um I always like to say, you know, is sh- all those films should should be instead of like written like directed by Brad Bird or directed by Andrew Stanton, it should really say written and directed by Pixar. Because that's really what it is, you know, it's it's a group of guys and some females of course, but mostly guys, and they're all buddies in the sense together and they're all helping each other out. Everyone has like each other's back. And so you can't really fail and in a way it's very similar to how marvel is making movies right now where they have a very specific brand they do sometimes hire these auteur directors but the films are all kind of the same they look the same they all have the same kind of formula um and they all perform basically the same at the box office and you know even when you have someone like Ryan Coogler who is said to be an auteur and that's like maybe a different conversation. Cause I don't really think he's an auteur yet. Um, but his, you know, he, Kevin Feig is not going to let him blow a $250 million franchise. Um, you just, you, you, you just can't fail. And so in that way, Pixar was very similar in their earlier films. Now, what happened with Andrew was he's used to being in this, very comforting, at home, loving, nurturing, creative environment. And then you take him and throw him basically to the wolves and say, okay, we're going to put you now in Hollywood. You're not going to be directing an animated movie with all your friends. You're going to be directing a huge, big big budget picture with hundreds of millions of dollars. And you're going to have to deal with real actors, with real problems, with real egos, with all of the complications that go along with making a massive live action major motion picture. And that is way different than making an animated film. Um, I'm not saying that making an animated film is easy, but it's it's completely different.
0: I also spoke with J.D. Carrera. He reached out by calling our phone line and I, I don't know, just really took to his personality and, maybe more than anything, the fact that he's working hard as a local journalist. He works for a local station out of Los Angeles, clearly works hard, seems to have his priorities straight. And I took to how he framed the value of his work. Here is our conversation, uh, the one and only J.D. J.D., how you doing?
3: Hey, what's up, Jake? The man, the myth, the legend.
0: So one of the reasons I wanted to uh, reach out, and thank, thanks for uh, taking the time here, is uh, I think it's... Can never be overstated the uh, the importance of local journalism. I I have a hunch that in 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 your in your line of work, you're doing the filming, you're doing the the writing, you're obviously reporting, producing. Uh, It it's not like there's a a, you know a a ten man crew walking around or a ten person crew walking around. Uh, What are maybe some components of of uh, local journalism that, that you think makes it, um, maybe that some people wouldn't fully realize.
3: I think that at least for me, the way I look at it is that with local journalism, especially the way we kind of do this like character driven storytelling style is that we are fortunate enough to like meet these interesting people each and every day. Right. And so, uh, today, for instance, I was talking to a stay at home mom who, You know, now that her youngest is in first grade, she's now finding her love that her like great great grandmother was a painter and her grandmother was a painter and the mom was a painter. And now she just decided to try taking a painting and she's like amazing at it. Like she does these hyper realistic dog paintings for people who like either lost a pet or something like that. So taking somebody's story like that to be able to tell another person's story for them. And even when she says, just like, I didn't think that anybody else would care about this, but Mm. thank you for like giving me a voice. Even during the LA teacher strikes, a lot of the teachers and and the parents, they all said the same thing. like We didn't think that anybody cared about us until you showed up. Mm. And just the ability to give people a voice and to bring light to local issues, because people can run on about national politics, but I do think that politics on a local level have more of an impact on our day-to-day life and to be able to see how that works with people uh, who have to deal with that stuff. And like I said, giving them a voice, I think that's the the biggest part about local journalism that people maybe don't see um, unless they really think about the whole thing.
0: Right. Is there a, a story or two that, that, uh, you can remember in, in your career where you were able to sort of put the parts together uh, because you were you were on the ground, something that, that you found, discovered that just wouldn't have been possible if you were only able to write emails or, or use the phone?
3: I remember back, this was almost a decade ago when I first started doing this stuff. Um, I remember there was a, a lady uh, in my news director and my producer like, go out, find somebody who, you know, cause it was like the space heater thing uh, when that whole thing, you know, it's always big during the winter, but you know, space heater safety and then making sure that people have the proper space heaters, especially the elderly.
0: Uh, I see. Okay. I gotcha. found
3: Through working with the elderly organization locally, and this was back in Lafayette, Louisiana, where I started, uh-huh. I found this one lady who like lived in a trailer and like her windows were blown out. And it was like, she was like an old lady, you know, a lot of, injuries or whatever and Mm. it was interesting because when the story aired not only did people like want to go and help her donate like either a proper space heater but like people came and they cleared out her yard they fixed up her trailer and that was like early on when i realized sort of that like boots on the ground of where this where we can make a difference Mm. and that had i just sort of maybe because this was like before Twitter was even huge. Right. So had I maybe just like asked for a person and not like go and check on three or four people, like maybe that lady who knows what happened to her, but like for sure she wouldn't have had like her trailer or whatever fixed up, uh, you know, for the winter.
0: And how do you, how do you, um, JD, how do you keep going at, at difficult times in, in your line of work? Because I assume there's got to be a lot of days Uh, weeks, sometimes months where it feels like you're not getting, I mean, clearly you're a kind of a natural born storyteller and, and, uh, seem to want to find the sort of not to be too cheesy, but like the humanity in in people that you're covering. How does that work when, when you're, when you're, when you feel like you're hitting a a lot of dead ends, what do you, what is something that you try and go back to, to, to that, that keeps you going?
3: funny, man. It's, a, it's, it's interesting that you asked that. I remember two or three nights ago, I was talking with my wife, mm. and she came up to me. And she was like, you look like you're in deep thought. Like, what are you thinking about? And she, I was like, well, I, I'm thinking about all of the moments in my life that I can remember that, like, really stick out. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't that many. I mean, if you laid them all down on a timeline, it's probably about three or four minutes worth of moments. Hmm. And with that, what I thought about was that, like, it's it's important to not get caught up in the moment because when I'm having those bad days, when I'm stressed out, when I can't find a story or when I'm hitting brick walls, and people are canceling on me. Like I can get so stressed out Mm. that I forget that what this is really about is like the mom, you know, like the fact that I cared enough to go and interview her. Like I gave her one of those moments that's going to be down on her timeline. Hmm. And that's more important than me getting ticked off that I can't, find a story or that I'm you know dealing with difficult people sometimes or if people blow me off like it just it was a good like sort of like in the moment life lesson that I was able to just it all helped like calm my nerves because even in the time when I was thinking it's funny because I was like you know I'm getting a little ticked off about either a story or or I'm stressed out like the job is tough or whatever it might be and it Mm -hmm. made me think like don't get so caught up in that moment it's just a moment and it's going to pass like and when I get the next opportunity to tell the next person's story, like it'll make this moment disappear and worth it.
0: That was so, so well put. Wow. Yeah. You got, you, you probably have no idea the number of uh, kind of stories you've created in other people's timelines. That's interesting. What is uh? so when you were thinking there a couple nights ago and your wife noticed you were in deep thought, what were a couple of the moments in, in your timeline, whether it's related to to journalism or not,
3: um, you know, I think back about the night I remember being in the living room when I heard my parents have that last argument before their divorce. Mm. You know, and how that shaped my life. Um, I can vividly remember where I was when my mom called me uh, and told me that, "Hey, there's a storm coming." uh you need to pack up your bags and little bit i know three or four days later that storm would be hurricane katrina um you know i, I remember being i mean like even to like some like earlier memories like i could remember because i was thinking about my kid and how he doesn't nap and i was like i remember the last time i wanted to take a nap it was like two or three of those moments i was like yeah i'm done with nap time <laughs> you know just even like earlier memories true. like that but it, there's, there's what, like I said, maybe three or four or five minutes worth of moments that you can really remember that like shape your life. Hmm.
0: Anything you, uh, last question here for you, JD, anything you'd say to, to young journalists out there that are, uh, thinking of, of going into that line of work?
3: Um, I think the one thing I would tell people is that like journalism is still important, you know, uh, even though, Twitter and and social media has made everybody feel like they're a journalist and (laughs) everybody with an opinion is now sort of labeled a journalist, man. But like, you know what it really like, what a real journalist is, man. It's like, it's caring for people. Like there's a reason why journalism is in the constitution and protected by the United States constitution. It's because it's important, right? Because outside of, Twitter, there's so much even noise on Twitter, like everybody doesn't really have a voice because even the mass of voices are sort of becoming like this monolithic side of left and right. So everybody sounds the same. Mm. So I think that journalism is still important because it makes people feel like they really matter. I think that when you look at journalism as a way for your voice to matter, that's when you're doing it wrong. And so I guess the only, the best advice that I can give to any young journalist is that like, do it for the right reasons. And it's not so your voice can be heard, but so you can use your voice so other people
0: can be heard. Uh, JD, my man. <laughs> I love it. That was great, brother. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, th- right. Thank you, man. Um, that was awesome. I, I uh, Sincerely, I really do appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike, view easy-to-understand charts and market data, and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of What Really Happened a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at Really. Dot Robinhood.com. That's really dot Robinhood.com. I recently also spoke with Richard DeSiri. He wrote the incredible book Morning Star Let Us Make a New Way. More information is on MorningStarStory dot com, And he had contributed a lot to our episode on Buffalo Calf, Road Woman, and General Custer. And he really wanted to emphasize this point that I, I think is important, which is that we just really can't forget the stories of Native Americans. Now more than ever, it's almost, if I don't, uh, incumbent on us to to really find and, and reach for those stories and, and make sure they're properly documented.
1: When the events happened um, in, in the case that um, a, a Buffalo Cap woman 1876. The years that followed, there were, there were traditions about who carried forward those stories and who, um, who preserved them. Um, and, and then after that, there was retaliation, as Herman Biola mentioned in the episode, um, and retribution. Um, but more than that, um, the children were taken away for generations and sent to boarding schools. The language was forbidden, um, and the whole narrative of that time was totally controlled. There was not room for the public awareness of the, the Indian perspective for generations. Um, and, um, and had they been voiced, there was not room in the awareness of the dominant culture to, to accept that. So there was careful preservation, but it became um, um, very isolated so that there were certain events that individuals could speak about and other events that different individuals could speak about, sometimes within a society, sometimes within a family and by carefully preserving that information over generations, over 100 years or more, um, the continuity, um, the kind of the big picture of what happened um, has really been lost. Um, so um, for um, the, the group of elders to come forward in 2005, I think that's when you said it was, um, that, that they spoke of the events um, at the Little Bighorn um, there were a collection of elders that each had a perspective that they were able to bring together and share and that that was unique i think for for me that um the the other side of that is that there are thousands of these incredible stories that are being lost um and And I think it goes back to the notion that we have accepted as a dominant culture, manifest destiny. We've accepted that that all of this was meant to be and that it's water under the bridge. And yet it's never been that for the native people. Um, They've held onto it. But now that the thread tying it all together, a lot of times seems um, to not be well connected. and um, you know, fortunately, you know, you you brought it out and others write about it. Um, I'm reading a book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the present by David Truer that carries forward that um that understanding um after the the last major incident um at Wounded Knee. Um and, and I think we need to um, to preserve the stories and bring them into our awareness now that we've maybe accepted the notion of a pluralistic society and, and a legitimate place for Native people here.
0: Yeah, Richard, I, I think that's uh, so well put and really incumbent, if I don't say so myself, on Storytellers, filmmakers, journalists—to—to uh, yeah. to now more than ever, just just be on top of this, and and kind of every day that goes by is a is another day that's that's lost unless unless we're really able yeah. to to talk and 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 record and, and document. Uh, so thank you, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being a part of the original episode and and coming on here again uh, tonight. I, I sure really appreciate it. Thank you. So a lot of people emailed some fascinating information and some opinions this year via our website, jenkspod.com or on my uh, Twitter or Instagram at Andrew Jenks or Facebook where I'm at Andrew Jenks official, which is extremely snobby. I don't know how you get the official status. Uh, I think someone probably took Andrew Jenks. Anyway, I wanted to uh, give a few shout outs here to some of the opinions that I, I took to Ethan Schmidt. Uh, among others, pointed out for the 27 Club that there's an important, uh, well-known musician who I forgot, uh, which is Robert Johnson, who had an incredible career. Uh, Carolyn Grant noted her favorite quote, which I I took to as well, from the great Michael Pye. The reason that story after story never got written down is because nobody wanted to write it down. It's funny how simple things are. Uh, The following is from Renee Angelo. I hope I got that right. Uh, This is a funny little few paragraphs on Balloon Boy episode. I thought the episode was great. I'd kind of forgotten what had happened, so it was great to hear the whole story. I also think my view of the situation got muddied by the National Enquirer. My grandma had a subscription to the National Enquirer, and we would always read them when we were at her house. If my memory serves me correctly, I believe they did follow-up stories on Balloon Boy. You remember correctly. Since you talked about news on this episode and how it works on the networks, I would love to know how that news eventually gets to the National Enquirer and how they operate. Could that be a reaction episode? It is such a garbage magazine. I love my grandma, though. National Enquirer is definitely a season three topic. Um, Then there was this comment here from Andrew Swinney. Swiney, I hope I got that right. Uh, This is about Anatomy of an Advertising Disaster, which is about that Pepsi commercial, which featured Kendall Jenner. Uh, He writes... I think that the failure of this campaign shouldn't have been a surprise, and I say that with the utmost respect. It was designed like some sort of market research mad libs, as in, okay, what do millennials like? Social activism, racial equality, the arts, the Kardashians, okay? Scene starts with the Kardashian with a protest behind them. Cut to Asian man. This is a personal annoyance, but targeting millennials is silly. There are 75 million millennials. There is a great marketing example that highlights how demographic data can be misleading. Who is this person? Born in England in 1948, very wealthy, Prince Charles and Ozzy Osbourne. Do they buy the same things? Do you market to them in the same ways? They are pretty different people that share a lot of similar demographic data. If you market to millennials, you need to either one, niche down, or two, just run brand awareness campaigns and keep it broad. The word authentic Comes up a lot, which I couldn't agree more with, in describing the rationale behind this campaign, but it is everything but authentic. Great writer. There is no real cause Pepsi is supporting with this ad. Heck, the Kardashians are famous for being fake. Consumers want brands to demonstrate corporate responsibility, CSR. This isn't that. This is an inauthentic attempt at that, and people can smell it a mile away. To be authentic, it has to be a real cause, and you have to have skin in the game. One of the concerns that fueled this campaign was the idea of creating something divisive and avoiding that. They did. They made something everyone hated. Divisive isn't bad, but by its very definition, divisive means that some people love it and some people hate it. Pepsi made a commercial that no one loved. Nike made a divisive campaign in embracing Kaepernick. But it didn't matter because their core demographic loved it. Patagonia made a divisive campaign with... The president stole your land, but it didn't matter because it aligned with their brand's values and their customers' values. Both saw a lift in sales. I personally, as this is me now talking, really enjoyed this, as did our, our guy outside here in the office, Lucas, with the term market research Mad Libs. Well done. Ethan Schmidt added something else uh, as it pertains to the Pepsi episode, and I'm I'm just going to include one piece of what he wrote. He said, Coca-Cola did, does it better, as in their advertising. I feel every year Coke comes out with a commercial or multiple commercials featuring people that come from all walks of life, mainly focusing on how Coke speaks multiple languages and brings people together. I feel Pepsi tried to do this, but their tagline was off. The line, live bold along with the actions throughout the commercial, doesn't add up. It's like showing a bunch of people at a gun range, shooting at targets, and at the end, having the word peace show up. It doesn't work. Now, I think if you take away the protest signs and have everything else stay the same and use a different tagline, you'd have a co commercial. Hell, put enjoy and come up with multiple P words that relate to peace to pop up and end on Pepsi, and you have a good commercial. So that is all for this week's episode. We have some exciting news. For the next few months, we are going to be having the What Really Happened interview series, where I'm going to talk to a wide range of fascinating people uh, about a wide range of topics, usually honing in on a specific moment in their lives and what really happened. Next week, I am going to South by Southwest, the Film, Music, Interactive Gaming, and Podcast Festival, and we'll be speaking with Aaron Lee Carr, who is an incredible documentary filmmaker and has a new movie coming out. That'll serve as our first episode to the interview series. And that episode will actually be recorded live in Austin, Texas. This podcast is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewirtz, Seven Bucks Productions and Cadence 13. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Andrew Jenks.